18. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, Matthew chapter 18, otherwise it'll be up on the screen. I'll just give you a moment to find it. We're reading from verse 1 through to verse 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than, than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always face the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. Well, good evening. My name is Rod. Uh, if you are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Uh, as you've heard, we're in the middle of this uh, series called Conversations That Matter, looking at a number of difficult uh, questions and topics, um, which are often blocks uh, for people who are yet to trust in Jesus to consider uh, the good news of the gospel. And perhaps tonight is uh, the most sensitive or most controversial of the topics we've considered. And um, before I begin, I want to say that um, the topic of abuse is something that some people here may have had uh, personal experience with, either for themselves or a close friend or loved one. Um, so this may be a, a night that's somewhat confronting and make you aware of that and encourage you to um, seek support afterwards. If necessary, feel free to talk to me or somebody that you know um, that you've come with. But let me pray for us, ask that God will help us as we look at his word together on this topic. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that we can gather together. We thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you that your word speaks into the darkest corners and addresses the hardest topics. And we acknowledge that uh, abuse is something uh, that can cause great harm in a person's life. Indeed, it can happen in many settings, even in a church. And so, Lord, we pray tonight as we think through this together uh, that you might uh, help us uh, to think wisely together, um, to hear your heart and your concern uh, for the vulnerable. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, as we consider a question such as why is there so much abuse in the church, I want to say right off the bat that this is a question that brings dismay and anger to both Christian and non-Christian alike. It's a great frustration to many believers that it's such a black mark upon the church, an institution that wants to claim that it teaches right and wrong, and yet an uh, institution that has seen abuse happen within it and has caused immeasurable damage to thousands of Australians. And such abuse has been spiritual, it's been verbal, it's been physical, it's been sexual, and abuse happens when there's a power differential, when somebody who's in a position of power or strength uh, preys on somebody who's in a position of weakness or vulnerability. And in church settings, I guess, uh, particularly in terms of coverage in the media in the last um, few years, certainly over the last decade, there's probably been two things that have been uh, brought up a lot. Uh, one is with regard to domestic violence, and the accusation levelled fairly at times uh, that churches have encouraged, particularly women at times, to stay in relationships that were violent to their own peril. The other one that has had a lot of media coverage in the last few years is, of course, child sexual abuse um, that came um, through our media constantly over a five-year inquiry. And we addressed uh, the issue of domestic violence about 12 months ago, and so tonight I'm really going to focus on the area of abuse of children, particularly sexual abuse. Um, but the principles that we're going to consider as we think about this topic really apply to all forms of abuse. Well, I guess uh, as we get into this area of child abuse, I want to say that any pretense that child abuse, and certainly child sexual abuse, had not taken place in churches or was not widespread was removed during the federal government's Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse. A five-year inquiry, as I mentioned, started in May 2013 and went through to a preliminary report in May of 2017 and then extended through to December of that year. And it was a massive undertaking. You know, 16,953 people um, contacted the Royal Commission um, to offer a complaint of some form or another. Um, 7,981 survivors of abuse actually told their story publicly before the Royal Commission and another 8,000 in private sessions. There were over 1,300 written accounts also submitted to the Royal Commission and about 2,560 matters were referred on to authorities, often the police. And it has to be said immediately that uh, this was an inquiry that was looking into all institutions across Australia, not simply the church, but of those um, abused, 58.1% of the survivors said that their abuse took place in an institution man managed by a religious organisation. And of those who reported they were abused in a religious institution, the majority, 61.8%, said they experienced that abuse uh, in a Catholic church institution, followed by nearly 15% in Anglican churches. 
and our denomination was not immune. Um, Baptist Church is accounting for 1% of abuse in religious institutions, or about half a percent over all categories, including outside of the church. Now, there are not any reported cases of sexual abuse from our church that went before the Royal Commission, but that doesn't mean uh, that there will not be people here tonight in this room who have suffered abuse, whether within a church setting, whether here or another church. In fact, in a gathering of this size, statistically speaking, there will definitely be those. And I want to acknowledge again um, that as we address this topic, it could raise hurtful memories for people and the accompanying painful emotions that come with that. And again, I want to encourage you um, that if that is you tonight that you and you haven't um, sought help or addressed um, that situation from the past, then let me encourage you to seek out professional counselling or support in some way. Don't allow that just to sit in the background. And I want to say that while I cannot change any abuse that you have suffered uh, at the hands of those who claim to be Christian, I want to say I'm so sorry that that happened in a church setting, if that was the setting for you. It should not have happened. It was evil, and it was not your fault that it took place. And my hope is that if that issue for you has not been addressed, that your abuser would admit to what had taken place, that it would be brought into the light, and if necessary, that authorities would be brought into it. Because I want to say that we take the issue of protecting children from abuse within our church very seriously, as every church should. We have a child protection policy which states in part, Wollongong Baptist Church is committed to the physical, emotional and spiritual safety and well-being of children and young people involved in church life, whether from within our church or from the general community. And as such, we will take all necessary steps to ensure church gatherings, children's programs and other events and activities are safe for children. Our church is also committed to enabling appropriate mechanisms for responding to any allegations of abuse and or neglecting concerns and or neglect concerning those within the church community. More than having a, a policy, which is one thing, to have something written down, we have entered into the National Redress Scheme that came out of the Royal Commission, which the government um, set up and encouraged uh, church denominations and individual churches to become part of in order to offer compensation for historical cases of abuse. Uh, we voted to join that as part of a denomination that chose to do that as well. And so we want to say that our commitment in part is seen in that as well. But more than that, it's about what we run from day to day, week to week in our church setting here and our commitment to child protection. Um, it goes without saying because we've been advertising it for the last few weeks, but just yesterday we had child protection training that took place here and we'll have training again next Saturday. And we do that not just to tick a box, but because it is so crucial that everybody involved in children or youth ministry in the life of our church is trained in these issues. We want people to be aware. We want them to be vigilant about any abuse that might take place. It's just so important. It's mandatory as well that that take place. And we've made it mandatory that all our leaders, even if they're not involved in children or youth ministry, would go along and be part of that because they'll often be involved, sadly, if a case does come up 
of what happens next. And so we require that of those, and we encourage anybody who's involved in our ministries to report any incident to pastors who are mandatory reporters and will immediately need to act on that, whether that's to pursue that with family and community services, facts, or indeed even the police. Now, it's nearly two years on from the conclusion of the Royal Commission, but you would hardly know that it finished. I think every week in our news cycle, we're just seeing one thing after another, still addressing sexual abuse, whether within the church or in more widely in our society. I just scanned some of the media this week and three headlines hit me within five minutes. How a Melbourne seminary became the breeding ground for a pedophile ring. Why George Pell has lodged a high court appeal. An editorial entitled, We Can Do Better for Victims of Sexual Assault. See, there's no doubt that abuse within religious institutions has been widespread and that many people have been harmed and that this is a shameful truth for the church. This has maligned the good news about Jesus, has brought into question people who are Christian, indeed, whether their God that they claim to worship is trustworthy. And so as we think about a question like, why is there so much abuse in the church tonight? What are we to conclude? How we think through such a question? Are we to say, well, yes, the church has been and will always be rife with abuse. If not, what are we to include, uh, conclude from the investigations over the last few years? Why have these things unfolded? What is the way forward as we think about this question and the question that often sits behind it, which is how can I trust the church? How can I trust God if these things can take place? Well, a few points that I want to make, but before we get to those, I want to firstly think more broadly about the whole sweep of what's happening in Australian society when it comes to abuse and particularly abuse of children. We have to think more deeply about this issue and what it says about Australia more generally. It's very clear from the Royal Commission that with regard to institutions, 32% of the sexual abuse reported uh, was in government institutions. Another 10% was in privately run organisations. And those other areas include things as vast as Youth detention centres, public schools, out-of-home care, sporting clubs, health services, the armed forces, family and youth support services, supported accommodation, childcare centres, and even youth unemployment programs. Abuse happened in all of those settings. It's clear that sexual abuse is rife right across institutions in our society. But the sad thing is that that is just the tip of the iceberg. The Royal Commission was simply looking at institutions, not looking at the family setting. And evidence from various government reports indicate that the largest category of sexual assaults in Australia occur in families by perpetrators known to the victims. According to a 2009 report by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, 42% of all sexual assaults happen to people under 14 in Australia, and of that group, 40% of them know the person that abused them well because they're in their family or they're a, a close friend of the family or a next-door neighbour. Unfortunately, one of the biggest threats to children are their relatives, sometimes 
their own parents. And so the government body of the Australian Institute of Family Studies provided a snapshot of child protection data in June 2017, looking at the previous five years, which was the time period of the Royal Commission. And the report considered all forms of abuse and neglect that had been reported to Family and Community Services, or FACS, which is the New South Wales body, and all the equivalent bodies in the other states around Australia. Remember that these are departments of the government that have statutory responsibility to protect children. In the final year of their reporting, 2015-16, that financial year, there were 350,000 reports of child abuse to the government agencies. 350,000. Over 30,000 of those cases were in New South Wales alone and were substantiated. Nearly 3,000 of those cases involved sexual abuse. And you can see on the graph, the remaining cases were either physical abuse, emotional abuse, or neglect. That's what's happening in Australia. That's what's happening in our state. And in fact, a report on the back of that from the Australian Bureau of Statistics found that as a result, every child, by the time they've reached 15 years in Australia, 10% um, of them will have experienced physical abuse, 12% of females will have experienced sexual abuse, 5% of males. And when all those stats are boiled down across all the government departments, it means that a child is abused in Australia every 15 minutes. There'll be two just in the time that I'm speaking to you that are abused. And we have to ask, what is the impact of all of that? Child sexual abuse has been connected to later emotional and behavioural problems in victims. How could it not? It, it leads to an increased tendency towards alcoholism, depression, mental illness and suicide. In 2007, the Queensland Children's Commission reported that some 70% 70 of psychiatric patients in that state are known to have been either sexually or physically abused as a child. A study carried out in New South Wales looking at prisoners in 27 prisons in our state found that 65% of male and female prisoners had been sexually and physically abused as a child. Now I realise that's a lot of statistics, but I want us to take in the full sweep of the problem and to point out that our society, to its humiliation and shame, is awash with child abuse. It's depressing. Mistreatment of children is far higher than many of us think it is. Now, I don't recite any of those figures to minimise or excuse what has happened in churches or religious schools for a moment, not at all. However, as we consider the question, why is there so much abuse in the church, I think we firstly need to acknowledge that the sin of abuse is endemic in Australia and sinful people reside in churches as well. The Bible argues that, doesn't it? That every person under the sun is a sinner because none of us even meet our own personal standards all the time, let alone God's perfect ones. And the result is the Bible will say everybody falls short of the glory of God, that nobody is without sin. 
And if you're a Christian here tonight, I'm not saying anything that will be a surprise to you. You'll acknowledge that truth. And by saying this, I'm not suggesting that we should not expect anything of Christians, that what happens in the church should be the same generally as in our society. Not at all. Now, if a person has come to a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus, come to acknowledge their sin before God and repent of it and accept his forgiveness through faith in Jesus, they're called to live a new life, to turn away from any sin in their life with God's help. They are to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and they're to love their neighbour as their self. And so there must be genuine, heartfelt change if a person is a genuine believer. They will admit their sins, they will humbly seek God's forgiveness and they will seek ongoing change in their life with his help. And this acknowledgement is important because we have to say that the church is full of flawed people. And that's no excuse for abuse for a moment or to suggest that what has happened is anything less than a shameful indictment on the church. But any idea that the church is full of perfect people who never sin, that such things could never happen in a church setting, is not what God would say to us in his word. A second point to consider as we think about this question, and that is that not everybody who claims to be a Christian is actually a born-again believer. The Bible wants to say over and over and over again, there will be wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, that amongst God's people that is described as a paddock of wheat, there will be weeds growing up all the time. It's never true that everyone sitting in a church building is a Christian. In Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who has done the will of my Father who is in heaven. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, if you're somebody tonight who hasn't put their trust in Jesus, you might think it's a bit convenient for me to suggest that a number of those who were picked up in the Royal Commission as abusers were never Christians. I'm not saying that everyone that offended lacked any faith in the Lord Jesus, not at all. But I do believe, too, that many people who acted in the ways that have been reported in that royal commission never knew Christ as Lord. That's not an avoidance of guilt. It's a simple reality. I mean, sitting in this church tonight doesn't make you a Christian any more than going home and sitting in the garage makes you a car. And we're used to differentiating between the real thing and something that's fake. We don't say, look, a person's Australian because they once ate Vegemite or they've had a holiday in Bali. That's not how we define an Australian, as much as those things are often true. And we're not to judge God and his love and trustworthiness on the poor performance of believers. At the end of high school and the start of university, I was part of a band and we just did covers of classic pop and rock songs from the 60s and 70s. We were pretty impressed with our version of Day Tripper, a song by the Beatles. But if somebody came along and watched us do Day Tripper, they could easily walk away, I'm sure, and say, 
Who would ever listen to the Beatles? That band must have been terrible. Look how that sounds. And that would be such an unfair judgment on the Beatles. <laughs> be a fair judgment on our band, which was called Crowd of One, and that was how many people usually came. <laughs> but we deliberately differentiate, don't we? We know if something is genuine versus a fake copy. And so I want to say to you, not everyone who claims the name of Christ is a true believer. And we need to take that into account when we consider the question, why is there so much abuse in the church? And following on from that is a third point. It has to be acknowledged, until the last two or three decades, the church was very naive. We were very trusting in allowing people to serve in all kinds of ways without having robust child protection measures in place. And pedophiles are people that are looking for gatherings of children so that they can infiltrate and be part of things. And churches often had people coming in amongst them and even rising into positions where they were involved in youth or children's ministry and they should never have been. And I say that not as an excuse for the church again, but to our shame. We failed people. We didn't have systems in place. And even the Royal Commission acknowledged that. They made a differentiation between things that happened through the 60s, 70s and 80s and even into the early 90s because so often in that period, churches did not have good measures in place. Thankfully, that has changed. And that doesn't mean that nothing will happen again, but that is an explanation of so many of these historical occurrences. But fourthly, I want to answer the question behind the question. As I raised before, for many people, the question of why is there so much abuse in the church is simply to say, therefore, I never need to take Jesus seriously. The God of the Bible is clearly not trustworthy. Look at his followers. They are a joke. If they allow this kind of abuse and they claim to be those who are righteous, who know the right from the wrong, forget it. And it's an understandable reaction. But injustice committed by the church the hypocrisy of some Christians is not the basis on which you should make a decision about the God of the Bible. We have to look to Jesus to make such an assessment of whether Christianity is true or not. Why is that? Because one of the stupendous claims about Christ in the Bible is that he is the only person who has ever lived as the Son of God who came and lived on this earth who did not sin who never was a hypocrite, whose words and actions always matched up perfectly, who never let people down, who never abused anyone. And so if we're to judge Christianity, if we're to think about whether the God of the Bible is trustworthy, we need to come to grips with what Jesus' life and death and resurrection means. And we have to see as we read the words of the New Testament that Jesus was very strong about protection of the vulnerable particularly children. He condemned it in the strongest terms. So let's have a look at it again. Will you have a look with me at Matthew 18? As we see, Jesus addressed the need to protect children and the judgment that will fall on those who don't. Verses 6 to 9. 
If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. And so if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. I mean, if this is not (laughs) mincing words, I don't know what is. Jesus does not mince words here. The term little ones in verse 6 is interesting. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus has been particularly focusing on children. He brings a child amongst a group of disciples and the crowd there and says, this is the one in their simple faith who is central to my kingdom. And then as he goes on to verse 6, he shifts from the term children to little ones. It's a deliberately ambivalent term that relates to not only children, which would certainly be included in that, but anyone who is maligned or is on the fringe or is looked down upon, those little ones certainly includes the vulnerable. And Jesus speaks in the strongest terms here. The church should be a place where both are honoured and protected from harm. Children mattered to Jesus. And to cause them to stumble or literally to trip them up in sin with our terrible failure is to bring down God's judgment and eternal punishment. And the vivid language about millstones around the neck and cutting off body parts is obviously figurative. It's not meant to be literal, but the meaning behind it is unmistakable. Jesus is saying it would be much better to die, to be drowned, than to cause a vulnerable person to stumble. And the phrases eternal fire and fire of hell in verses 8 and 9 point to the fearful judgment of God and his commitment to bring justice, justice on every single wrong action that's ever taken place. Now, this should be an encouragement to us because it's a theme that runs right throughout the Bible that God is so committed to bring justice that he will bring sin into the light and he will judge it. It's the story right from the beginning of the Bible, isn't it? In Genesis 3, we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They're given one instruction not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, they disobey the Lord. They do so. And then in their sin, they try and cover up the situation. They don't run to him in repentance. They run away from him. God goes to them, gives them an opportunity to confess and come before him. But instead of repenting of their sin, they blame one another. But God is committed to bringing sin into the light. And then he's committed to judging it. And so he sends them out of the garden. And that same commitment runs right through the Bible. That's a great encouragement to us, not only to see God's character and his trustworthiness and his commitment to stand against that which is wrong, but the call should be to his people, therefore, that we're not bystanders, that we don't sit by and fail to expose the deeds of darkness that should be brought into the light for judgment. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5. 
We are people of the light if we have trusted in Jesus and we are to bring things out of the darkness so that they be seen for what they are. We'll have a look at what Jesus has to say about it. Matthew 10, verses 26 to 28. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, so often... A person's story of abuse doesn't even get aired. There's not even another person that hears it, let alone a judgment that falls, let alone a person being jailed. What was reported to the Royal Commission is probably a third at best of what happened. So much abuse was never shared. But you see here that no one will escape accountability. Whether a story is told, whether somebody is put in jail or not, God will see to it that every sin is judged. Nothing escapes his eyes. He sees it, and one day on the day of judgment, he will bring things to account. If it does not happen in this life, it will happen in the life to come. But there's something more profound even in the New Testament than God's commitment to judge sin, to bring justice And that is in sending his son, the Lord Jesus, that he would enter into the abuse and suffering of this world so that he understands fully anything that we might face. And more than that, that he might overcome that abuse and offer wholeness and healing for those that come to him. And that is astounding. He demonstrates that he understands abuse because he suffered it himself. And he can offer us eternal life, a place in the future where there is no more crying or mourning or pain. Have a look with me at 1 Peter 2, verses 22 to 24. Because here is one of many summaries in the New Testament which tells us about what Jesus himself endured. The Apostle Peter writes, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I want to say to you tonight, if you have somebody that's come here and you faced abuse at some point in your life, that Jesus loves you and that he understands exactly what you've gone through. Jesus has faced abuse in a way that is hard to fully describe. Emotional abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse. Let me run through just the final days of Christ's life. He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane at night with a a group of Roman soldiers that have been sent by the religious authorities, the the religious authorities of the Jews that should have recognised that he was the Messiah but who wanted him dead. 
And at that point of his arrest, all his disciples, all his friends left him. He was completely deserted. He's brought before the religious authorities for a kangaroo court of a trial where they simply verbally abused him, where they accused him of various things, where they slapped him and beat him. But he didn't retaliate. Having said they have decided that he had said something blasphemous, they took him off to governor to Pontius Pilate the next morning. They bring him before the Roman authorities because only they can execute him as they want. They don't have the power to do so. And Pilate finds that he's innocent. There's nothing wrong with this man. He has done nothing worthy of anything, let alone death. And yet the religious leaders have whipped up the crowd into such a frenzy that the verbal abuse from the religious leaders the night before would have seemed as nothing to thousands of people screaming, crucify him. And then to be dragged away after Pilate gives up on defending him because he doesn't want trouble in the city, essentially, hands him over to be killed. He's taken away by the Roman soldiers who then mock him mercilessly. They put a robe on him. They jam a crown of thorns on his head. They cover his face so that he cannot see them. They beat him with sticks and they say, prophesy, tell us who hit you. They spit on him. And after they've had their fun of mocking him and abusing him, they drag him out to be scourged. Two Roman soldiers with whips, the end of which have bone and metal in it. The person is either held down or usually tied down and they are beaten and whipped within an inch of their life so that their back is completely torn open. And when they're at the point of almost dying, they thrust upon them the crossbar of the cross and they order them to walk through the city as a deterrent for anybody else ever doing anything wrong. And as Jesus stumbles through the city of Jerusalem, he eventually gets outside the city walls to Golgotha where he will be crucified. And then they, well, they, they draw straws about who will take his clothes. They throw him down. They bash nails through his wrists and through his shins, all the while abusing him and he is put up on the cross to be crucified. And then the religious leaders come along again to hurl abuse at him. Well, if he's the son of God, well, why doesn't he come down then? If he's so good, let's see it now. The crowds of the people in the city come out and do the same. Even the criminals being crucified beside him hurl abuse at Jesus. He doesn't retaliate. Crucifixion had become an art form by this point. The Romans didn't invent it, but they perfected it. It was designed to have the most agonizing, slowest death possible. And for Jesus, it was a mercifully short six hours. It could often go on for a day or two. But it's designed so that you cannot hold yourself up so that you can breathe and eventually your lungs collapse, you won't be able to breathe and the weight of your body pulling you down. And there in agony, physically abused, he continues to take the taunts of verbal abuse. Jesus knows about abuse. If you've ever been abused, Jesus understands. 
there's a difference between what he experienced and what you may have experienced. Because in his case, he was not powerless. He was not in weakness. He could have stopped what was happening to him as the eternal son of God. But he took on that abuse. Because in doing so, he was fulfilling his purpose in coming, that he would die on a cross and bear your sin and mine. And deal with all the abuse, overcome all the abuse of this world as he bore it in his own body so that Peter can say, by his wounds, you can be healed. And I want to say to you, Jesus stands with you. Jesus stands with the abused. And so should his people, the church. And if they fail to, it's a mockery. Now, if I've raised issues for you uh, that are tender, I really encourage you again to talk with somebody about it. Talk with a good friend that you've come with. Um, Seek out someone to work through things this week. Talk to a professional counsellor. Maybe get a referral from your GP. Whatever it might mean. But that abuse that you've suffered needs to be brought into the light. Because bringing into the light will allow a process of healing and wholeness to start. It doesn't mean we won't carry those hurts and pains throughout our life. But it does mean that if we come to Jesus and place our faith in him, that he can do something that we can't do for ourselves. So let me encourage you that as we come and consider the life of Jesus, we see somebody that condemns abuse unreservedly. But more than that, we see somebody that bore our abuse so that he might give us wholeness that he might give us forgiveness if we would come and place our trust in him the one who fully understands but the one who has overcome and offers us life new life now life eternal in a perfection that we can only dream of in this broken world I'm going to pause now and ask you to reflect, perhaps spend some time in prayer. If this is something that's um, been particularly personal for you, I encourage you to spend that time and then I'll lead us in prayer in a moment. So let's pause. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge tonight that we do live in a broken world that there is sadly so much abuse in this country and throughout this world. It's part of our fallen human condition and our rejection of you and your design and plan for us. Lord, we want to acknowledge that you sent your son Jesus to do something about that, that he addressed in the strongest terms the need to protect children, to protect the vulnerable, that all abuse is wrong. More than that, that he bore it in his own body, that he might lay down his life for us, that we might be offered a fresh start. 
Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. Help us to see our need of him and the way forward that he offers. Strengthen us, we pray, too, to seek out help if we need to, that you might do your great work in us. Thank you that you love us and care for us more than we can know. We pray, Lord, that you might help us to continue to reflect on what you've done in your son. And we ask it in his name. Amen.